Welcome to the Talent Development Think Tank Podcast. The number one podcast for learning and talent development professionals. Now here's your host, Andy Storch. Welcome to the Talent Development Think Tank Podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you are joining me for another great episode to help you up your game and improve your capabilities in the world of talent development. That is what we're all about. And you know we cover a wide range of topics on this show I think back to the last few episodes, you know, we talked about things like AI, we talked about building a, a new talent program, we talked about talent mobility, we've talked about really connecting talent development to company strategy and thinking about how you can empower more people in your organizations to develop themselves and each other. And we talked about emerging talent, developing an emerging talent. And today we're going to get into talking about building behavior based programs and why behavior based training is more effective than sort of the some of the old school methods and and many of you I know are are already fans and advocates of this you're on board you know that experiential learning behavior based learning is more effective than maybe some other methods out there but if you're like me you're always looking for inspiration and new ideas for how to get better at these things and so I know this episode is going to give you value my guest today is Matt Jerson who is the founder and chief learning officer at Better Everyday Studios a full service instructional design team that helps aerospace and defense companies with everything from training needs and analysis to learning content creation and delivery. He began his career in the United States Air Force as an instructor pilot in the T-1 and KC-10 aircraft. And when not in the air, Matt spent his time racing triathlons, completing Ironman Lake Tahoe in 2013. And after nine years of service, Matt left active duty to become the manager of training and development for SpaceX, where he was responsible for new hire orientation, employee and leader development, as well as various aspects of technical training from environmental health and safety compliance to production and engineering skills. And after four and a half years at SpaceX, he moved on to another company before starting his own firm, where he focuses on defense and aerospace and working with companies really across all different industries to create custom learning content and facilitate impactful employee training designed to change behavior, improve performance, and help leaders build organizations people love to be part of. And we're really going to focus on that behavior part in our interview today. We'll discuss some of Matt's background because I'm just fascinated by his experience as a, not just a pilot in the Air Force, but a trainer. So he was training pilots as well as the time he spent at SpaceX before moving on to start his own thing. We'll really get into talking about this idea of behavior-based training as well. Matt is also a member of the Talent Development Think Tank membership community. He's actually a member of our Entrepreneur Mastermind. So he's someone I get to see on a regular basis on Zoom and learn from. And I've just been really impressed with the way he approaches his business and life and was excited to get him on here. And so just a reminder to you that if you're not a member of the Talent Development Think Tank community, it's all about community. It's all about networking. It's all about making connections with people in the talent development world. We have three tiers of membership, the foundation level for early career professionals in talent development, the all access for more experienced professionals or anybody in talent development who really wants to get the most out of growing their career. And then we have the new entrepreneur tier specifically for people who are running a business within the talent development world, like as a speaker, a coach, consultant, that sort of thing. All right. You can find more information about the community, including all three of those tiers, on our website, tdtt.us. Just click on community. That's tdtt.us and just click on community. All right. Without further ado, I give you my interview with Matt Jertsen about behavior-based training. Enjoy. I am joined now by Matt Jertsen, who is the founder and chief learning officer of Better Everyday Studios. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Andy. I'm really excited to be here. 
I'm excited to have you on. You and I, I think we connected on LinkedIn several months back, you know, started it was chatting. A mistake. It was I a mistake. It was, oh, think, it was a mistake. I think it was a mistake. It was like you reached out to me as part of some campaign you were doing and we, we tried to figure out how exactly it worked, but I'm I'm really excited because yeah, we, we got connected and then we finally connected face to face at ATD earlier this year. Yeah. Well we, we can lift the veil on this and I don't know how this is gonna go, but yeah, that's right. It was it was sort of a campaign. I'm always sort of like connecting with new people on LinkedIn, but like, you know, let's be honest, like we're built we're both entrepreneurs, right? I'm building a business. So I'm usually targeting people who work in talent development in big companies. Yes. Like yes. not yes. only could be good people to know, but could also be clients. And then I think I connected with you and I was like, oh, this guy's running a business too. Like he seems cool, but he's not going to be a client. So, you know, no big deal. But we ended up talking anyway. And I was like, oh man, this guy's really cool. So we chatted, you ended up uh, coming and joining the, the Think Tank community. We ended up hanging out at the ATD conference in San Diego. You joined the new entrepreneur group that we launched in the, in the talent development Think Tank community. And uh, it's been really cool getting to know you and seeing what you're doing in the business world. And especially how you're working with companies in a completely different way. Like we do very different things. Yes. And especially with the the amazing experience you have coming from the Air Force and uh, in the space industry, which I want to get into. Yeah. So it's interesting how we can we can make friends from different places. You know, you and I connected on LinkedIn different ways, and then we get to hang out and we we hit it off and we learn so much from each other. And I'm excited to dig into a lot of your experience, especially around creating behavior based learning programs. And I think that's something that a lot of people in our industry know are important and impactful and are trying to get better with. But before we do that, I'd love to start with a little bit of your background and how you got into learning and development in the first place. Yeah. And I think that background, interestingly enough, is what leads into the behavior-based learning because it's, it's really where I started. So I started, it, it's funny when I think back at my career, even though I've, I haven't been in corporate learning development for all that long, just since uh, 2015, I've really been in training in learning for my my whole career. So I started in the Air Force. I was an instru- instructor pilot in the Air Force. And when I graduated pilot training, when you finish pilot training, there's something called a FAPE, a first assignment instructor pilot, where they take a certain number, like they usually take one person per class. It's usually the second person in the class because by regulation, the first graduate has to get their first choice of assignment. And so then they want somebody good. So that second person, they keep back at pilot training to immediately become an instructor. And so that was my start of being an instructor. I went to flight instructor school for four months where they're not teaching you how to fly the plane because you already know how to fly the plane. They're just teaching you how to teach people how to fly the plane. And so that's where I started doing that for several years. While I was there, I also got really into, I I was big into triathlon. And so I started some training programs there where I like taught people how to run their first half marathon and that kind of stuff. So training was where I started and it was a very practical training, right? Like how do you run? How do you, how do you land the plane? How do you take off? How do you not die when you're in the plane? That, that kind of stuff. And then went on to my major weapon system, which was the, the KC 10 really big plane became an instructor pilot there. That was a whole other level of just nerve wracking energy when you're teaching people how to do aerial refueling. That was just like, (laughs) it it was really crazy. And then I, as my time at in the Air Force was was coming to, towards an end or towards a potential end, towards when I could leave, I had always been really interested in space. I'd been a space fanatic my, my entire life. I started to fly planes because I wanted to be an astronaut. And back then, you know, SpaceX was the big thing. They're still the big thing, but they were just becoming really big. So I was really obsessed with SpaceX, really wanted to work there. 
had absolutely no idea how I was going to get in. And I had assumed that, you know, because like since I was an instructor pilot, since being an instructor is kind of a natural progression in the career of an instructor, I didn't really see it as a as a feature of me, of, of what I what I had done. Mm. And beside being a pilot, whenever you're a pilot in the military, you also have another job. And you could be doing many other jobs, but a, a lot of my time had been spent as a scheduler, where I was the one like sorting all the missions that we had and attaching air crews to those missions. I'd spent a lot of time doing that. So I assumed I was going to go into the world and become like a production scheduler or, sure. or, or some, something in that kind of world. But I had zero connections at SpaceX. And so I just was, you know, looking on LinkedIn, trying to reach out to people, trying to connect with people. And eventually I connected with the head of the person who was in charge of one of their launch sites here in California at Vandenberg Air Force Base. And he just said, uh, well, well, you know, we're, we're looking for somebody to help us with training. Have you ever done training? And I was like, well, I was an instructor pilot, so sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I could do that. <laughs> and so started as a contractor there, must have had success in my role at the launch site because then about a year later, I moved to LA to take over the whole L&D team for the mm -hmm. company. So that's what, you know, that was kind of the entrance into formal corporate learning and development. Stayed at SpaceX for about four and a half years, then went to another company as an L&D role. And then uh, it was a startup that I was helping like scale the L and D function for this for a global startup. And then went and decided to do do my own thing to do better video studios. Yeah, I, I can't wait to dive into that. And it's such a great story. And I'm thinking as you're talking about training pilots and the things that go into that and the refueling that you know sometimes we we make the comment every now and then when people are taking things too seriously at work, like, hey, it's not life or death, right? It's not rocket science. But like, it literally was, right? You are setting people up and making sure that they can do something properly. And if they don't, then people could die. Did you feel a lot of pressure with that? Or was it so systematized that you're like, I know we're doing this the right way and we have the right people here and they're going to figure it out? So there's absolutely a lot of pressure and mm -hmm. being an instructor pilot, I think being a lot of things in life, it's all about the way we used to describe it is it's about constantly expanding your comfort bubble mm -hmm. of how far you will let the student go and feel confident that you can get it back under control. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're just, you're kind of letting, as your skills as the instructor grow, your bubble gets wider and wider and wider. And then what always happens is you let it go a little too far and you have a scary moment where mm. you're just like, oh, wow, like I am literally glad I am alive right now. <laughs> and then wow. that contracts your bubble back in and then you slowly <laughs> expand it again. And then, and so the whole time being an instructor, it's just this constantly like expanding, contracting as your skills increase, as you gain better ability to keep control of the aircraft, as you gain better ability of knowing what the student is going to do. I remember very clearly, this is when I was in, in instructor school. So I was actually flying with a more experienced instructor, but they were pretending to be a student. Mm. And we were in the pattern, what you call in the pattern. So we were just like practicing takeoffs and landings at a field. So we were only 1500 feet off the ground. So we were really close to the ground. And we were going to practice engine out landings when that's what you do. So we were in a dual engine aircraft. And so me as the instructor, I pull back one throttle to idle so that it's like one engine just failed. And now the student is going to practice landing with just one engine. Now in a dual engine plane, what that does is it 
tur- it tilts the plane, right? Because the thrust is only coming from one side of the aircraft. So it's pushing the nose over. And so the student has to s- step on the rudder of the good engine to pull the nose back straight so that you can keep flying straight. And that's just one of the techniques that you're trying to teach them. Well, this fake student in order to test me, he stepped on the opposite rudder and he like really stepped on it. And so we're in the pattern. This is a busy airspace. We're not that far off the ground. We're not that far away from other aircraft. And the plane almost does a barrel roll. Like it almost flips over like right there just because of, and so it was just one of, you know, the, the test is like, am I really watching what they're doing to make sure that I can like jump in and make sure that we don't get into a truly dangerous situation. So it was definitely nerve wracking. Oh (laughs) my gosh. Yeah. But that is how you learn, right? And you prepare you to work with students. By the way, that reminds me, really has nothing to do with flying, but the other day I was driving with my wife and a couple of friends in some traffic and there was this car in front of me that I thought was a taxi that just kept stopping and pausing at like every intersection and it was getting really annoying. And I was like, this is the worst taxi driver ever. They really should know what they're doing, where they're going. Yeah. And then one of our friends pointed out, oh, it's a student driver on the back of the, you go. <laughs> the, you go. Of the car. It's not a taxi. They're actually learning to drive right now. And that's why they keep stopping at like every intersection. It seems so uncertain. It was like, oh, exactly. okay, it makes more sense. But now I could have more patience and more empathy and be like, okay, this person is learning. I'm going to slow down, right? Yeah. As we all do when we're working with people learning. What was the transition like going you know, you didn't fully come go from military just to corporate, right? Because you went to SpaceX, which is not a military operation, but certainly connected to working with military operations, right? And is in this whole space industry, which by the way, I want to point out too, I remember you telling me your story before. I love that because it's a great example of someone owning their career, right? Of saying like, hey, this is the place where I want to work. I'm going to go build my network. I might not even know where I fill in there, but I'm going to go find a position that works for me. And exactly. Then, and then someone recognizing the strengths, the skills that you have, and then putting you in that, which is really cool. What was that transition like? What did you take f- with you from your military experience that's been useful for you in, you know, in the corporate world and even in the work you're doing now? It was it was a really hard transition for a, a few reasons. There was a lots lots of good things, lots of things that I took with me. I mean, certainly, you know, the behavior based approach to things I definitely take took. With me, I mean, when it comes to training and what is good training, you know, the the U.S. military is the U.S. military because of training. Like that's what we do, and it's just at a whole other level than almost any company is. And so, just that idea, that belief that training will make a difference, that you can imbue people with new skills, level up their game. You know, a lot of principles of leadership, the importance of leadership, I really definitely took with me. The The biggest challenge specifically at SpaceX is though it's very connected to the military, it has a very, it doesn't have the best relationship, or at least it didn't back in you know, mm. 2014, 2015. And I think the big change that is true at a lot of companies, a lot of the tech space is it's a lot of informal leadership. It's a lot of, you know, best idea wins. How do you put forward your best idea? And so coming from a very hierarchical organization where I'm used to, okay, you like you find the group commander, you find the wing commander, you find who's responsible, convince them, and then it happens, right? Whereas at a lot of companies, SpaceX included, those kinds of power structures just didn't really exist. There wasn't, if if I convinced the head of HR that something was important and he believed me, it didn't matter. Like I still had to go convince 
the people below him that like I had to go convince all of the people down the chain to mm-hmm. get involved in a particular program. And so that was something that took me a while to realize and was probably one of the bigger struggles that I, that I had in making that transition. Yeah, very interesting. So you got this experience in, in learning and development at SpaceX and other organization, then you decided to go out on your own. I'm curious, like, why did you decide to go out on your own and focus on the work that you're doing now in experience and, and behavior-based learning? So there are really two reasons. Like the one kind of simple reason is I had always really had a strong belief about like what good culture is. And I think just the fact of the matter is, is like when you're at a company that's not your own, like you can only do so much to influence that. And I think that's where a lot of what you need to do when you're looking for a career is finding those culture matches. And there were lots of things that matched with me at SpaceX. There were lots of things that matched with me at the next company, but there were always things that I was kind of like, man, like I just, I just wish we could do it a little bit differently. And so I kind of decided the easiest way to do that was to go out and start my own company and, you know, then I can truly, you know, set the set the tone and set the culture. But I think more importantly is through being at SpaceX and through being at other startups and kind of being in the semi startup world, I saw how much potential was wasted at these organizations that didn't have strong learning and development practices, talent development practices early on. You know, a lot of startups of course, like their focus early on is figuring out the technology, right? They got to figure out the product. They got to figure out how to build it. They got to find their consumer and that's their whole focus. And then almost inevitably they find that product, they find that customer fit, and then they need to scale. And then as they scale, these weird problems start to pop up of like maybe, you know, attrition starts to rise a little bit or their managers are having problems doing things or the employees just don't seem quite as skilled as as they used to be. And it takes somewhere between 12 and 24 months to even realize that these problems are talent development problems, right? Like when you hit scale, when you go through a big growth phase, there's all this friction and it just takes a long time to realize what the root cause is. And it's very, and it is very often talent development. It's the fact that you've hired a bunch of new, you know, your initial cadre of employees, they had the time to grow with the product because they were developing the product, they were figuring it out. And now you have a product and you just hired three or four times as many people as you've ever had before, and they need to pick it up right away. And they don't they don't have that time that those initial cadre have. And, and if you don't put that in place, then they're going to fail. Similar thing with managers. When you scale and you hire all those people, where there are all these people that you're not going to promote into their first-time manager positions, and they've never done this before. And yeah. you know there is very little correlation, if not a negative correlation, between your success as an individual contributor and your automatic success as a manager, right? Like, they, they just don't correlate. Yeah, right. And if you don't have training systems in place, you're going to have a bunch of bad managers, right? It's just going to mm. happen. And so that was my true desire early on was like, there's all of these challenges that we're facing in the world, whether it's climate change, you know, infrastructure, wh- whatever it is. And the truth is, is we have the solutions to all of them right? Like we have the technology to make infinite energy 
infinite clean energy. We have the technology to make better roads, to make better cars, to make better planes. And it's all locked away in all these startups all around the world. And I just wanted to have the ability to help them jump across that friction point because I think it is a point that really inhibits a lot of organizations. I've seen organizations where they had a great product, they had a great culture, they, they had a great drive, they knew what they were doing, but they had, you know, 15 to 20% annual attrition. And it's just like, you're, that's not going to work. Like, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, you're just holding yourself back. And so the hope was to get in and, and help those companies. And the thing is, and the reason why I focused on, you know, like the behavior-based training is because those companies don't need something fancy, right? They don't need some, a new AI, VR, AR tool to just, you know, you know, really dazzle everybody. They need the basics. They need simple, streamlined compliance training. They need mm. basic, like, orientation, employee orientation and onboarding. They need a new manager onboarding program. That's what they needed. And so that that's what I wanted to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about why behavior-based training is so important. I came up, sort of accidentally stumbled into this world when I took a job with BTS, a consulting firm many years ago, and they're big on experiential learning programs, used to build business simulations. And one of the things we'd say about the importance of experiential learning is that the military is using this all the time for decades, right? Like yeah. they're always going out and practicing, 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 but in the business world, we'll never practice anything. We just go do yes. it. And then it could often be a failure. You know, where, where have you seen companies make big mistakes for that? And where have you seen the benefits? Like why is this behavior-based training so important? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're 100% right. It's it's the place I've seen it really work is is in the military because that's 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 how I grew up and that's how I, how I saw it a lot. I think the biggest place I've seen it have an impact is really in soft skills. You know, mm -hmm. hard skills, technical skills, I think very often are behavior-based, but then often in soft skills, we kind of just like throw up our hands and like, it's not the same, yeah. it's different. And yeah. I always say the only difference between soft skills and hard skills are that we haven't thought enough about soft skills to make them hard, mm. right? And, you know, Tim Ferriss talks a lot about this. There's a lot of people that talk a lot about how if you say, you know, I want to make a good manager, well, what does that mean? What does it mean at your organization to be a good manager? It's going to mean certain things like, you know, they have conversations with their employees. They help their employees with their, with their development. They're good at giving, you know, setting goals and giving feedback. And it's almost like you can do a five why analysis of you can just continue to break those things down until you get to discrete skills that can be practiced. You know, so an example that I often use is, you know, with DEI training, if you say you want someone to, you know, have less unconscious bias, I don't know what that means or, you know, necessarily like we're going to need to spend some time talking about what do, you, what do you mean by that? And I don't really know how to train someone to have less unconscious bias as, as a big picture or be less biased. But if you say, I want to train all of our managers to make sure that when they're looking at a resume, they're directly comparing the you know, work, past work results of each candidate 
Like, oh, okay, like that's a very specific thing of making sure I want them to go to find these sections of the resume and compare those specific things so that they're not, you know, having their bias kind of come, come into play. And, you know, maybe that's from a DEI perspective, maybe that's not the right thing to do. I don't know. But, but you get the idea in that the more specific you can get, the more realistic you can be about, is this going to have any impact? Is it going to change behavior? What's it, what's it going to do? So it makes the training easier and it makes the, the chain from, you know, training to behavior to impact a whole lot easier because now, now you're kind of, kind of in, in between there. And I could actually talk for a while about why I, I tend to talk about behavior instead of impact, but I don't know if you had any other directions you wanted to go. <laughs> Well, why is that? Why do you talk about behavior instead of impact? Because impact is, you know, people say like at the end of the day, the most important thing is the results. And yet yes. I, I also hear people saying like, it's about behavior change. So tell me what your philosophy is on that. So the way I think about it is I, I still agree that at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to have impact. I think yes. it's through behaviors that you were going to get that impact. But the biggest reason I focus on behavior, the biggest reason my number one question when I'm talking to a subject matter expert or a stakeholder is what behavior are you trying to change is because I find that most of the people you are going to be talking to in the development of training, impact is too big of a question. Mm. It's too far removed from their point of view. If if you're sitting down with the like senior environmental health and safety uh, uh, technician or something and you say what impact do you want to have? Like that just it just sounds too big and it's like yeah. I don't know. I guess I guess we're trying to like pass audits and and it's just like all, all this stuff versus right. if I ask what behavior are you trying to change? Oh, I need people to put their waste in this can and not mm. this can. And the the other reason that it's helpful is because any impact is going to come from multiple inputs, multiple behaviors. Right. And right. it just kind of, it can really quickly become super cluttered and all over the place. And if you have a lot of time, I do still think, you know, if you're doing like really big picture performance needs analysis, then yes, start with like, what are the big picture impacts that we need to achieve and making sure they are aligned with the business and then work your way down. But when you're talking about an individual course or an individual stakeholder, it, it can speed up the conversation if you just dive straight into behaviors. Yeah. And it reminds me too, like we talk a lot about the importance of connecting with business priorities and strategy yeah. and looking for ways to make an impact on the business so that you can get more support. But like you said, like it's, it's hard a lot of times to draw that that red thread or direct line to say like, oh, if we get these managers to have more conversations with their employees, that's going to grow revenue by 5%, right? And yeah, there's so yeah, many inputs yeah, yeah. that go into that, but it could be a factor because if those managers do that, maybe our retention goes up, you know, if we have these behaviors and that leads to, you know, more and better financial results for the organization. So you're saying, let's, let's focus more on what behaviors do we want? For example, we want people putting their cans in recycle. We want our managers to have more career conversations uh, or better conversations with their people. Then how do you go about implementing this behavior-based training? Because I imagine this is obviously much different from saying, oh, let's throw up a PowerPoint and send an email and say, yeah. hey, managers, you need to have more conversations with your people, right? Go yeah. do it. And obviously, like that doesn't happen. So where does the behavior-based training come in? 
yeah, it always makes you know those sessions super practical. That's that's another reason why I love behaviors uh, behavior based training because when it comes to you know any kind of facilitation, it just means I'm talking a lot less. <laughs> it puts mm. a lot less weight on my shoulders in some ways. The only thing that I need to do really is create a space and be willing to push create a space that allows and be willing to push people through a lot of discomfort, right? Because mm -hmm. it means, hey, we're not just going to talk about this, we're going to do it, right? And you can really simply, you know, I remember making a sales enablement training once that this was probably one of the funner exercises I ever did where we were, we were teaching them how to, you know, do cold calls and talk about the product and that kind of stuff. And so we started with, you know, 30 minute your regular 30 minute seminar on this is the product. These are all the pluses. These are all the minuses. This is, you know, this is what it is. And then we pause and say, okay, now that you have that, I want you all to spend 20 minutes writing your own description of this product in 250 words or less. And we gave them time and we did it. And then everybody kind of, we shared them and talked about them. And like, okay, now rewrite it in a hundred words or less. Mm. And then we rewrote them and you had to do it in a hundred words or less. Okay, now rewrite it in 50 words. You know, get what's that zinger? What's that like? What's the elevator pitch? And mm -hmm. they had to write that. Okay, here's a Google voice number. Call this and leave a message of you reading that. So they really have to like verbalize it out loud. Yeah. And then because they're recording it into a Google voice number, voicemail, I, it's my Google voice number, I can pull it up and we can listen to them all. And now we can deconstruct like you kind of, I know these were your words. You didn't really sound like you believed it there. You kind of <laughs> hesitated on this spot, you know, so you can get like, it, it's just about that repetition, repetition. And it, it just comes back to, you know, I, I draw a lot from the personal development space. And this is what the personal development space is all about. It's all about mm -hmm. just taking that first action, just doing things mm -hmm. in repetition. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's bringing all of that into the talent development space. So true. It's funny you bring up personal development space. I've been very into personal development, I'd say, for the last seven years or so. But one thing I've noticed is that you can become obsessed with this stuff and read book after book after book, but it's not going to change your life or do anything for you unless you actually start practicing stuff and taking action. And I would meet people, I'd go to some of these seminars and conferences that are like, oh, I've been to like 30 of these this year. And I'm like, really? Yeah. What have you been doing? Yeah, well, I've just been, you, you know, mean? just taking it all in. Like, okay, well, what are you yeah. doing with that? You know, you're spending money, you're having fun, cool. Uh, I'd rather go to one and then like spend some time on implementation afterwards. And it's tempting to go, like, I love reading books and I want to go from the next one to the next one. But sometimes I ask, like, what's the point unless I do something with it? Which is why I wrote a chapter in my book about having a bias for action. Like, once you learn something, yes. you got to do something with it. Otherwise, like, forget about it, right? And if there's one thing I can do, one thing I really want strongly from, like, my keynotes and training that I run is just for somebody to go do something. I'm throwing yeah. a lot of things at you. I know you're not going to do everything, but just go do something so that I know this had an, an impact, right? Maybe it changed the behavior for you and which will ultimately have an impact. Absolutely. I mean, that's why, you know, Tony Robbins, his, he always talks about taking massive action as mm -hmm. that idea. You know, if you're sitting down and you decide you want to lose some weight in that exact moment where you decide that, go to the fridge and clean it out. Yeah. You know, if you decide you're going to become a runner in that moment, go change, put on your running shoes. I don't care if you run a half mile, but just go do it right then because that's what brings it into your system of, oh, this is real. And that, you know, then, you know, bringing that full circle to the talent development space, that's why in that moment you want to test people. In that moment, you want to push people to implement the things that you're talking about so that it really becomes real to them.
I think that when it comes to creating more experiential or behavior-based training, it requires a little bit more risk, right? Because the easy thing to do is say, I have this information, I'm going to transfer it to you versus saying, I'm going to just give you a space to learn this on your own and practice it and take action. And there's always a risk. People are going to say, well, I don't want to do it or I don't have to, I'm scared or whatever, right? How do you get started with this? I think it involves more creativity as well. And, you know, we've got a lot of people listening who work in talent development, who are creating and running different types of programs. Some are already making them behavior-based. Many others are still sort of doing the old school methodology. Like, how can people get started in creating more behavior-based training? Well, so there's, there's two different things that I'll point out. In the kind of how you started within the moment of the facilitation, I think it really is all about just like good best practices with facilitation of, for me, as fast as I can in any presentation, I'm getting the the participants participating, right? I'm like the icebreaker is before the, my introduction, right? It's like, as soon as we get started, it's go have a task, go get talking. So you, you mm. set the stage right from the beginning of this is going to be a participatory environment, right? We're going to be doing things. And so you try to get the ball rolling to help alleviate the friction later on. So they, so they, they kind of realize that. So that's kind of in, in the individual interactions. When it comes to bigger picture of if you're thinking about the strategy of how do you start to develop a more behavior-based approach, I really think it just always comes back to asking the question, what behavior are we trying to change? And mm-hmm. mapping everything back to that. Not only does it make things more effective, it just makes everything simpler and shorter. And, you know, a lot of times there'll be, you know, there are tons of times where I've looked at environmental health and safety training and it's very regulatory based. They're like listing out the OSHA regulations that things are coming from. And when you ask what behavior are you trying to change? Like none of that matters. Like you can just get rid of so much content by focusing on the behavior instead of the knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And really like it all comes back to what behavior do you want to change? What, pe- what do you want people to do? And remember that people learn a lot more through experience and practice yeah. than they yeah. do from just sitting around listening. And not that we don't learn from reading and whatnot, but that's also a reason why you mentioned Tony Robbins. I've been to UPW. I don't know if you've been to, to yes. that program as well. Like he gets people up moving, moving. all the time, right? Like yes. every lesson, okay, now we got to go dance or we got to go talk to somebody or we got to like yes. make something happen because, you know, the energy changes with movement and with practice. And with that, I will say, you know, that's why no implementation of this can be the same everywhere, because it is very much about the culture. If you are just have an organizational culture that is very reserved or where people don't feel safe, it's going to be hard to Mm. get them to do this. And I think just like I say, you know, one thing I say with managers, when you get a new person on your team, for better or worse, you are their worst manager. Right, like they're take they're bringing in all of their preconceived notions, all of the memories that they have of the worst managers they've had in the past, and they're yeah. applying to them to you until you teach them different, right? Until you perform better. The same is true for facilitators. In the moment that things are starting, this is the worst facilitation they've ever been. They're going to assume it's boring. They're going to assume you're not committed, that that you don't really care about them. And it's on you to show them that difference. So if you're in an organization that has a great culture, then maybe this is really easy to implement because people want to engage. But there's a lot of organizations out there that don't have great cultures where people aren't used to being able to give feedback. They're afraid to voice that feedback. They're afraid to put themselves forward for fear of retribution. And so that just means trying to have this behavior-based approach is going to be all the 
trickier. Like it's going to be harder. You're going to have to do more work because you have to make that space where people feel safe practicing because ultimately that's what we're coming back to is practicing. 100%. Matt, this has been awesome. There's so many more things we could delve into, but we got to wrap things up. We're out of time. For people listening that want to get in touch with you, maybe want to work with you to create some behavior-based training, where's the best place for them to go? So you can definitely see me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. You can please reach out directly to me at matt at bettervideostudios.com. And then we actually have a podcast called the Making Better Podcast. So we we actually talk a lot about this. It's where talent development and personal development meet. So it's all about that Mm. interaction. Two of my favorite things, talent development and personal development. I can't wait to listen to more of that. So make sure you check that podcast out. Go reach out and connect with Matt on LinkedIn. Connect with me if you're not connected already. Matt, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to chat more in our bonus Q&A. We're going to wrap this up for now. So thanks again. I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Andy. All right, that will do it for my interview with Matt Jertson about behavior-based training. I hope you got value from that. I really liked digging into some of Matt's background from the Air Force and SpaceX and the experience that he took with him and then really getting into some of those topics about behavior-based and experience-based learning and why that's more effective and and talking about focusing on behaviors instead of results because they're a, a little easier to sort of quantify, measure, or see and easier to ask people like, what behaviors do you want to see changed? I know many of you are asking these questions, but a reminder, you know, when people come to you with requests for training to be able to take a step back and ask, hey, what are you really trying to solve? What do you really want to see happen? And then what's the best way to make that happen? And if you're in a smaller organization or you don't quite have all the capabilities to do that yourself inside your organization, reach out to Matt, see if maybe he and his team can help you All the info should be in our show notes. And I want to remind you, again, Matt is also a member of our Talent Development Think Tank membership community. He's in our entrepreneur group. He's going to be leading a call soon on this topic of behavior-based training. We're going to get him scheduled in the late fall for 2023. So if you're not a member, come check out everything that we have going on. We still, as I record this, I'm still offering a 14-day free trial, which means you get to come join for free. Join two of our live calls, which happen every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time and see if it's something that's valuable for you. And then if it's not, then drop your membership, no hard feelings. But I want to give people access to check it out because I don't think a lot of people realize how much value is in this community with the live calls and the recordings that we have available. So all the info again is at our website, tdtt.us and just click on community. That's tdtt.us slash community. You can also find info on our podcast there as well. All right. I hope you got value from this. I hope that you will share this with some of your colleagues and friends. Leave a review for the podcast if you haven't done so already. And tune in next time for our bonus Q&A episode with Matt Jertson. Have a great day.